While you're turning in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15, I was just thinking this week, talking to one of my children about uh, the Revelation and, you know, what the application is. Uh, the Revelation, it's so uh, macrocosmic, you know, in its approach, and I, I do wonder, you know, uh, what, what our takeaway is from this, and I, I do pray that there would be very much, and I think primarily in all of our message, the primary takeaway should be an amelioration of our, of our worship and praise of God. It should increase our understanding of the God who has saved us and why, in fact, we should be worshiping Him. But there certainly also is a call in our lives. And I think one of the recurring themes we see throughout the Revelation is the call to persevere, the call to overcome. That is something we see over and over again. I, would, I dare say the reason it was written was that those seven churches might know the difficult times that were about to come upon them and the call that they should continue in the faith. And as I was thinking that, I, I think, you know, probably a week or two doesn't go by without me getting in some form a statistic, the statistic of people who are leaving the church in our country. And not only leaving the church, but leaving the faith altogether. You know, where these, these, these polls that are taken where people are now, instead of putting Christian or even anything religious, they'll say not sure or agnostic or no religion and what have you. And I think that we shouldn't view that merely as a statistic. I think it's a, it's a tragedy when that takes place. We, we have become largely a, a secular society. And we tend to think, at least in the world, you know, when we interact with the world, that a secular society is somehow neutral, that it's, it's some level playing field. But the scriptures don't talk about it in that way at all. Matter of fact, Jesus, speaking of his own generation, compared it to a demon that left a man and went about and found that there was really no place to go and decided, I'm going to go back to this person I left and found that, that, it was, that he was clean and swept and put in order, but empty nonetheless. The, this, this person, this man had not turned to Christ. It was empty. And so what does this demon do? He's like getting seven of his worst friends and enters into that man. And the latter condition is worse than the prior condition. And Jesus says, that is the case with this generation. That's the generation that's receiving the revelation. They are a people who have turned away from Christ and they're filled with nothing. And because they're filled with nothing, they find that they're actually become filled with darkness. And I think it should be our desire and our prayer that as we study the revelation that that not be the case with us. These, uh, these stats of people leaving the church usually revolve around young people and churches bend over backwards to accommodate these people. And they begin to alter the Christian faith in order to accommodate those people. And that is also failing miserably. What we need to do and what we need to pray for, pray for me, pray for our denomination, pray for the church in general, is that we don't come up with creative ways to accommodate the culture. That we preach the pure and unadulterated gospel, recognizing that is the means by which God's Spirit actually regenerates souls. And then once we come to faith in that, we, as we read the Revelation, we are to persevere even in the midst of a hostile environment. And so with that kind of as a, a bit of an introduction, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 15. I'm going to pursue the daunting task of covering an entire chapter in one sermon, so you might want to pray about that. Pray for yourselves. 
Revelation 15, 1 through 8, hear now the word of God. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of gold, They sing a song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked... And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine these words, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, open our hearts to understand what is really taking place. Help us, Father, to look beyond that which only we can see with uh, our external vision. But help us, Father, to see with a true living faith who you are, what you have done, what you will continue to do, and your call in our lives in terms of these things, and especially as we examine this chapter and the depth of it. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we live in an era of mass information, and that being the case, we're exposed almost on a moment-by-moment basis of the monstrous behavior of the luminaries of our society, whether they're political luminaries or celebrities in general. We hear all the time of what's going on in the lives of popular people, yet it would appear even people I agree or disagree with, it would appear that the famous, especially the politically famous personalities, are never held accountable for their actions. It can be disheartening when we hear of people in positions of power doing things that any one of us would be arrested for. And that just doesn't happen. And we ask ourselves, Will there ever be a reckoning? Is anybody going to do anything about this? And if there is going to be a reckoning, will that reckoning only happen in eternity? Are we going, look, at nothing's going to happen now, but in eternity everything will be worked out. Now let me just state absolutely and most certainly the greatest reckoning will be on that final day. That, I mean, that is, that's the heart of the redemption. But, as we learn in the passage we just read, 
God interacts with his history. And he interacts with his history in such a way as to raise up and depose kings and kingdoms. God is not inactive in history. He raises them up and he takes them down. And it would appear by the context of chapters 13 and 14, and I think this will also become clear when we look at um, the catechism question that I'm going to read in a moment, it appears that God's patience hits its border. His patience comes to an end when his body, that is the body of Christ, becomes the target of persecution. That seems to be, if I could say it this way, what really gets his attention. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? I mean, you could do all these other things, but the moment you do these to the least of mine, you've done it to me. He takes it very personally. And I think that is the context of chapter 15 of Revelation. Verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Well, we're now turning home in terms of God's quenching of those who would promote evil and seek to stem the tide of truth and redemption, especially the truth and redemption found in Christ. Now, we may balk at the notion of the wrath of God being great and marvelous. I mean, those words, great, you know, the Greek word mega, just big and marvelous. We, we tend to use marvelous, maybe not the way it's used in the Bible, but it's something that we marvel at. It's something astonishing. Right? It's, it's, uh, you, it, you, it just can't escape your attention. Nonetheless, you might think, well, if we're talking about these, the wrath of God, how is it great and marvelous? And I would say that if we have that disposition, it's only because most of us have never lived in the depth of darkness that these first century saints were exposed to. I think if we had lived the way they were living, if we found ourselves oppressed the way they were oppressed, we would recognize the wrath of God upon the wicked as something great and marvelous. I mean, all we have to do is go back earlier in the Bible where the Israelites are delivered from the Egyptians. And this chapter is going to appeal to that. After 400 years of slavery, and God delivers them at the great expense of the Egyptians and the judgment of the Egyptians, it's great and it's marvelous. And they would have no problem singing that praise. But we've, we've kind of got a different view of the faith in our culture where we don't view something like that. We view that the wrath of God is almost an embarrassment. It's the cousin who shows up at the meal who kind of is embarrassing you because of the things he says and the way he behaves. We should not think that way. We should recognize that truly the wrath of God is a great and marvelous thing. And although John writes here, I think of a specific historical event, I think he's talking about the judgment of, of Rome, because he's talking about how it's soon going to be complete, it's about to finish. I think this, I think we can be assured that those saints, even in the world today, 
who have refused to bow the knee to man at great expense in their faithfulness to Christ can be assured that even in history, God will suffer evil for only so long. Verse 2, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Well, we have this now, this image of this sea of glass, and as I try to do in these sermons, I try to give you the various opinions of people in terms of these types of references. Some view the sea of glass as the brittle nature of this world. I don't think that's what it is. Others, I think, with more merit, think this is a reference to the Red Sea, especially because in this chapter you see a lot of references to the Exodus, to Moses. I'm not sure that's what it is either. Still others view it as the brazen sea in the temple, the font that the priests were to wash themselves with. I mean, some of these make more or less sense. But in Revelation 4.6, we've already seen a reference to this sea of glass. And I think what we're brought to here, if I could just put it plainly and simply, is a heavenly scene. We're brought to a heavenly scene. We're, we're, we're given the opportunity to look beyond the veil. God is opening up something that, you know, philosophers would call metaphysical, right? It's not just the physical, it's what's beyond the physical. That which is really happening. As we so often observe in the Revelation, our minds are ever to be swept heavenward. It's a revelation. What, what is it revealing? What, what the revelation is revealing is it's revealing that which is real. It's revealing, when, in chapter 4, when the Lord says, come up here and I'm going to show you some things, He's revealing the way He actually operates, what is really taking place. We are to ever engage in this world with a mind toward that which is heavenly. We can't allow even moments to go by without the thought of that which is eternal. We see, we see here much more than a mere guide to holy living. Not that I'm against holy living. What we see here is the basis of holy living. You see, we're not merely brought to that which is true when our eyes are open to see this glorious work of God, we are brought to the one who is himself truth. This is what the revelation is doing. It's revealing to us the power of the cross, the work of Christ, and Christ himself, the Lamb of God. And we don't want to read the revelation apart from the reality of that. Apart from that, Apart from recognizing the depth of what God is doing in Christ, the scriptures become mere ink on paper. The Apostle Paul, writing of those who could only see this singular dimension, who, who when they read their Bibles, all they could see were the words, he writes about what can and what should happen to those whose eyes are open to see these glorious things. In 2 Corinthians 
3, 15 through 18. Yes, to this day, Paul writes, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their eyes. Yeah, I hope you notice how, how, as I've said so many times, the revelation is not some new different thing in your, in your Bible. That when, where, to whom is Moses read? It's read to the Jews, right? And what do we read in the revelation, right? They say they are Jews and they are not. Right? So we're talking about a religious community, the covenant people of God, who have rejected the very heart of that covenant, who is Christ. And Paul's already writing about this before we ever get to the Revelation. Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their eyes, their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. You see, that's, what, that's what's happening in the revelation. The veil is being removed. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. This is what is happening. This is, this is the aim May we ever read the scriptures as those who have turned to the Lord. And when we read the scriptures as those who have turned to the Lord, we find ourselves, as he writes here, transformed. Throughout the chapter, our minds are ever going to be beckoned here to the tabernacle, to the exodus. You know, when we study the Exodus in in Exodus, we generally focus on the deliverance of Israel. I mean, if you read your Bibles, you'll find that there's a lot of references to the Exodus, all through the Old Testament and into the New. And we generally think of deliverance, the deliverance of the Israelites. What we don't think of quite as much is the judgment that fell upon the Egyptians. Two things happened there. One was a deliverance. The other was a judgment. The sea of glass, right, brings our minds to heaven. But the sea of glass is what? It is mingled with fire. Now, for the most part, when you read about fire in your Bibles, it's referring to some type of judgment. There's an impending judgment. There's a sea of glass mingled with fire, and impending judgment is coming. Friends, The scene here is an ominous scene. Those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name. I mean, who are those? Those who have not taken the mark, those who have not bowed the knee to Caesar, those who have not said, we have one king and he is Caesar. Those probably referring primarily to the martyred saints here, are standing on a sea of glass mingled with fire. And they have harps. I mean, mean, it's kind of a... I'm sure somewhere in Rome, there's a mural that they've tried to paint of this. I mean, you can imagine this picture in in your head. But what's going on there? These martyred saints on this sea of glass 
with this mingled with fire playing harps. It's been said that they are playing, as it were, the soundtrack for judgment. It may be the background music for judgment. You know, we tend to think of the harp as a very mellow instrument, right? You know, it's like playing in the background of a wedding. The Greek word for harp is where we actually get our word guitar. And I don't think it's the exact same instrument, but there are people in this room who, when they think of the sound of a guitar, it's nothing like a harp. Right, Gino? (laughs) And I can't say with any real certainty what those harps sounded like in this soundtrack for judgment, but I'm guessing it's closer to the ride of Valkyries than it is to Enya. I don't know. Either way, either way, I think what we're seeing here is that the most powerful, oppressive, bloodthirsty, Christian-burning, soul-killing nation with their string of would-be gods, right? I mean, the, 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 the Caesars were seeking to be promoted as deities. So you've got that kind of a nation sitting on their thrones. And what we're learning here in this scene is that their days are numbered. What had probably appeared to be an unbeatable nation. And their days are numbered. And in the same way, the Israelites would praise God for His deliverance of them in Exodus 15 with this song of Moses. These glorified saints, in like manner, would lift up their voices in the song of the Lamb. Verses 3 and 4. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. It's been said that what we're reading here is, is the act of Christ replacing the empire of Rome with his own empire. We go back to Daniel, right? The stone cut without hands, who is Christ, falls upon the image during the Roman Empire. And that strikes that image, and that image becomes chaff. The image blows into the wind, but that stone becomes a mountain and covers the earth. This is the picture that we're given here. So instead of a world governed by human folly, warped deceit, and falsehoods, and you might, right away, when I I read that, and when I read this morning, you might go, well, that's the world in which we live right now. And yet it would describe the entire world during the time of Christ. You know, the gospel going forth has been a light to the nations. We, have, we do have hope that there will be some truth. We do have hope that, that the warped deceit will not last. That the, that, that the Great Commission will have its way throughout the course of history. What we're seeing here, I believe, is that 
as they're singing this song, this idea of God being just and true, is that justice, true justice and truth would begin to weave its way into the world through Christ, through the Great Commission. Discipling the nations. The King of Saints, which by the way, some of your versions, if you have I think the ESV, it's, it's the King of Nations. So King of Saints, either way, the King of Saints is the King of Kings. That's a very, by the way, it's a very attacked doctrine today, this idea that Christ is the current reigning king. We've talked about this before, how the throne is a predominant theme in the Revelation. The kingship of Christ is a predominant theme in the Revelation. You know, Jesus has his three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Here, the focus is upon Christ the king. And the Westminster Larger Catechism describes this office, and I think also describes the order and priority of it. I think it's an office we should understand. Question 45, how does Christ execute the office of a king? What's he doing as king? The answer, Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself. I pray that's every one of us. And giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them. You know, elders and deacons and so forth, the way things should operate in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins. And by the way, any understanding of the grace of God that makes you think there are no consequences for sin is a misunderstanding of the grace of God. There's great affliction that God will lovingly bring upon his own, preserving and supporting them under all the temptations and sufferings restraining and overcoming all their enemies. See, now we're moving outward. He's kind of going, I'm your king, and then I'm going to save you from the world. I'm going to save you from yourself. Though you fall face first, are you not going to land on your face because I hold your hand? And yet there's an outward enemy restraining and overcoming all their enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good and also taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. That's what's happening here to Rome. They've put their crosshairs on the church, and Christ has now put his crosshairs on them. We should, I think, find comfort, even in our current, really any political climate, with these words. Should we do what we can do in terms of ameliorating our society and our culture? Absolutely. But our ultimate comfort is found in the sovereign hand of God. I I am responsible to be responsible. And yet the real peace comes in knowing that God is the one who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. I mean, the comfort found here is a threatened comfort. When you think about these first century saints and other brothers and sisters throughout the world today in nations hostile to Christ, reading about the fact that their king is in control. And I do have to say this, though. It's worth noting that the current, the current culture in which we live that has won the day in terms of eschatology, 
the one that sells all the books, the one that makes all the movies in terms of end times. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of quotes here, and I'm not going to go into detail here. We've done this in a conference, but nonetheless, these quotes are from notables. They have jettisoned the notion that Jesus is the current reigning king. I mean, if I were to ask you, is Jesus currently the king of kings? Is he currently the reigning king? I would hope every one of you would be, why are you even asking me that? And yet, the popular end times theology of today does not believe that. Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, in his book, Major Bible Themes, explains this, that Jesus is now serving as priest and not as king. That's Dallas Seminary. Right? That's a, probably the most influential seminary in the 20th century if not even to this day. Another president of Dallas Seminary, John Walvoord, made this comment. His, that is, Jesus' fulfillment of the role of the ruler of the kings of the earth is future to be achieved after his victory over the beast and the false prophet. Jesus has the right to rule, though he is not exercising this right over the kings of the earth right now. I mean, I, I hope, and I'm not going to go any further in that, but I hope that you can see how this view not only infringes upon orthodoxy, but robs Christians not only of their comfort, but of their task. Now we go into this song. The song somewhat rhetorically asks, Who will not fear you, O Lord? Well, the implied answer is that it would be the height of folly to reject him who is just and true. And I have to say, talking about just peace and and comfort as a Christian in a world where we struggle with who to believe. I don't know know if you feel that way. I feel that way. I mean, if I go to news outlets, I feel like I have to listen to 11 reports of the same issue and then create a Venn diagram to figure out what actually (laughs) happened. In a world where we struggle, you know, who to believe... Or who is truly equitable? You know, who is the just person? I think this idea that God is just and true is profoundly a fountain of peace. And I think we need to have an elevated view of the sovereignty of God that he ordains, in fact, whatsoever comes to pass. Not just the things I like. Even the things that I'm looking at going, how is this glorious to God? How is it, in fact, that God has created everything for his own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil, is a hard thing for modern Christians to get their arms around. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, addresses this. There are a lot of passages in the Bible that could. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. <laughs> I'm in charge of what's, what happens from the very beginning to the very end. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey. And by the way, the bird of prey in the context here is the the pagan king Cyrus and how God was going to use a pagan king for his own judgment. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man 
who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I also will do it. If you have a hard time falling asleep at night, that's a good passage to read. (laughs) Moving on, though, when, it might be asked, will all the nations come and worship God? I mean, that's what the passage says. All the nations shall come and worship before you. When is that going to happen? Now, again, you know, I've tried to make an effort in, these, in this series for you to understand the various views and not just the view that I seem to think is the correct way to understand this. So let me just briefly tell you the different views of when people think all the nations are going to come and worship God. The futurist. Now, they did make a um, who's who and what's what cast of characters for those of you who need to learn the terms, right? Futurist or preterist or idealist or historicist. So that's around somewhere. Like I need to update it. But the futurist is somebody who's going, most of Revelation, at least from chapters four on, is all about the future. It's, it's really not about what's happening with those seven churches. Their view is that the nations will come and worship Christ after the second coming in the future millennium. That's their view. That, those are the people who don't think that he's currently the reigning king. That's when he'll start to reign, after the second coming in that thousand-year period. The idealist or amillennial position, and those two generally go together, and I think it's a much sounder position, those are the people who believe that more or less the promises that we see in the Revelation are to be restricted to that which is a material or that which is spiritual. It's a, it's a spiritual victory, but we shouldn't view it as, as kind of making its way into the concrete world so much. That, those people go, this is what happens at the consummation of history, or this is in the eternal stake. All the nations in heaven, as it were, will worship Christ. The partial preterist view And that is those who believe that the Revelation is primarily talking about the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New Covenant. Believe that this means the increasing growth of Christ's church in the fulfillment of the Great Commission and its profound effect upon all areas of life. That in fact, the Great Commission will be fulfilled and throughout the course of history we will see kings and kingdoms, nations coming and worshiping Christ. It may take 10,000 years, but that's the understanding. And I would argue that that final view seems most consistent with the overall promise of the universal impact of the gospel throughout the course of history. That, the, that, that a man will not have to say to a man, know the Lord, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. The righteousness of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The picture, I think, that we see in the scriptures in the Old Testament, in that temple of Ezekiel, is it starts small, right, as a stream, and then the stream gets bigger and bigger. That's the living waters, if you will, of Christ, and then becomes an impassable deluge. The picture we see in the Gospels is like a mustard seed starting small and getting big, leaving, permeating the entire loaf. It is something that happens gradually throughout the course. Or the one we already read, right? The stone cut without hands, right? And does what? 
becomes a mountain. A, a, a mountain doesn't hit the image. A stone hits the image and then becomes a mountain. So we see this progression taking place. It is true that the kings of the earth, as we read in Revelation 21, 24, bring their glory and honor into the new Jerusalem. But that can only be true because they bowed to the sun while they were still on earth. Anyways, moving on, verses 5 through 8. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the tabernacle came the seven angels, having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. I've entitled this section, The Temple Closed for Business. We see now the, temp- the opening of the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven. It's an allusion to the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. It is here where the high priest would make intercession. The description of the angels with bright linen and chest girded with golden golden bands, that was the garb of the high priest when he would make inquiries of God. So we see very much this picture of the interaction with this holy place. And I have to say this, in a culture where, and I think it was R.C. Sproul said, that we've sought to defang God, we might lose the irony that this holy place, which contained the mercy seat, would also be the place from which his bowls full of wrath would proceed. It's the, mer- it's the place of mercy. And yet in this picture, it's the place where the bowls of wrath proceed. Now, we're not going to take up these bowls of wrath right now because they're all in the next chapter, but I will say this. We need to recognize, as we so often see in Scripture, that that which is a blessing to those in faith can at the same time be a curse to those in opposition to that faith. I'll say this sometimes during the Lord's Supper, right? this idea that, we, you know, that the, the, the splitting of the Red Sea, that event was a blessing to God's people. It was not a blessing to the Egyptians. Or the taking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Right? That, that taking of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 was a blessing to those who take it in faith, but it was not a blessing to those who took it with disregard to the body of Christ. There are many references to that throughout the Scripture. But we have to understand, I think, as we read a passage like this, that the Christian faith in our culture is often viewed as a product. It's designed, you know, its primary design is to serve me, to enrich me, to upgrade my life. You know, like I'm a pastor of a church, but I really should be a life coach. And we sit down and I'm, I stay, start taking the Christian faith and picking it apart in such a way as to help you and maybe a little differently for you and you and you. And I don't doubt for a second that apart from Christ, there's no true life at all. So this idea of it being God, Christ serving us, he most certainly came to serve. Enrich, Absolutely. Upgrade from death to life. No doubt it is all of that. 
But it is a deadly error, friends, to tinker or engage in a selective, buffet-type approach to the faith, to alter it in such a way as to serve me better. Put my finger in the wind and go, what do people today need? Because that's what I'm going to turn the Scriptures into. That which I think people need. Boy, I made a couple of decisions not long, well, a long time ago. Number one is I'll never work on the brakes of my own car. And I very seldom in my house will work on electric or gas. Because one burns the house down and the other one blows the house up, right? (laughs) I also decided I will never perform surgery on myself. These are things that are just, you know, you just... But taking the Word of God and going, you know, we just need to tweak it a little bit to accommodate. It's like, it'd be like me taking my crayons to the Mona Lisa, right? It just needs a little improvement here. I'm not really into the smile, really. What's the deal with the smile, you know? We live, we, live, we live in a culture, we need a bigger smile on the face of Mona, or whatever her name was. But people do that with the scriptures. They're like, oh, no, we need, to, we need to really emphasize this and de-emphasize that. Or we need to find things that aren't in there at all. I mean, if it's dangerous to work on your own brakes, how much more dangerous to work on the great and marvelous things of God? We need to bow before that. We need to recognize that when we open the Scriptures, we're handling something much greater than ourselves. And it should be the quest to ever present that pure and unadulterated message. Now, the living creature here, just to kind of get the, the image here, the picture gives us the impression that the commission of this judgment comes from the very presence of God. We, we see references to those living creatures very close to the throne of God, and the smoke from the glory of God and from His power directs our thoughts to the giving of the law, directs our thoughts to the unapproachable holiness of God, as we see in Isaiah chapter 6. So you've got this idea that the, how they're trying to paint in this picture is, this is coming from a very, very holy place. But I have to say, in all of this, perhaps the most disquieting words are the final words in the chapter. That no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So you've got these bulls of wrath, and I would argue that they were full against Rome. God had made up his mind about Rome, and he would no longer entertain intercession for that nation. No one can come in and pray for them. I will no longer hear prayers for them. Now, we see this point of no return sometimes in the Bible. We we see it, you know, in God turning people over to their own desires. I think we see it in Romans 1. I think we see it in Hebrews 6, you know, where he says it is impossible to renew them to repentance. There seems to be this point of no return, this Rubicon that people in their hard-heartedness cross where God is going, you're on your own, you're done. But we also see that in nations. In terms of God's judgment on Judea, 
In Jeremiah 14, 11, and 12, we see this, this commission by God. The Lord said to me, and you don't see this too often in the Bible, but it is here, right? Do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and, and by pestilence. Now, this might, you know, elicit all sorts of questions that we'll get to next week, because today we're not doing Q&A. But you'll be like, well, how do we know if we're one of them? I, I would argue that if a person actually is offering a sincere prayer in Christ, that they've probably not crossed the Rubicon. I, I would argue these are the kind of prayers that are not done in Christ at all. This, this type of religious approach to God is a, a religion devoid of Christ. Nonetheless, we need to recognize that this is the direction that a people will go. It is not to be not religious. They'll be religious. They just want religion without Christ. They want a bull calf. You know, when they made the bull calf in the wilderness, they weren't trying to create a new God. They were creating the same God who would do what they want Him to do. J.I. Packer talks about it in Knowing God. You know, they wanted the kind of God that would not tell them what is right and wrong. A, a God that they could worship in frenzied debauchery, Packer puts it. That's the kind of God they wanted. Well, of course, that became a false God altogether. And that, was, that, is, what would ha- that is what I believe happened with Rome. They were done, and God was done with them. They had put their crosshairs upon his people, and again, God had put his crosshairs upon them, and now they were beyond hope. You know, years ago I did a wedding for a college teammate of mine. <clears throat> he asked me to do his wedding. And um, he was an atheist. And his fiance was an atheist. And I'll, I would do a wedding of two atheists. You know, they were equally yoked. <laughs> and he was, he was a good buddy. You know, we played volleyball together at Long Beach State. You know, I got together with him, and we started talking about the wedding, and we're going over the order, and he's like, Vidge, they used to call me Vidge in college. So when do you pray? And I go, well, I, Tom, I pray for you all the time, but I'm not going to pray in your wedding. He's like, what? I go, well, you don't believe in God. Why would I pray in your wedding when you don't believe in God? I mean, clearly God's not invited to your wedding. And he found that notion very disturbing, which, by the way, was my goal of saying it in the first place. I mean, I don't think we always think it out. I think one of the worst things God can do to an individual, to a church or a nation, is to allow them to follow their own inclinations, to follow their own heart, to live in the full consequences of their rebellion. Now, we spoke last week of this great division, and that great division is now climaxing. And it would be the full force of God's grace or the full force of God's justice. And I do pray that we would ever be a people who would enjoy the full force of God's grace, seeking to persevere and overcome. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would learn from the admonition, the exhortations given to this early, these early churches, 
who lived in really what amounted to be a much more hostile environment than we currently find ourselves, at least in our nation, that, that, Father, we would not be won over to false gods, to false religions, or to some form of thoughtless agnosticism, that our souls not be, might not be open for business to seven demons. We do pray, Father, that you would ever per- preserve us, that we might walk in perseverance. We pray for our church. We pray for our denomination. We pray for the church in general. That, Father, that you would ever protect your church, that you would bless those who bless your church, and that, Father, that you would stem the tide of those evil powers that would seek to quench the gospel of Jesus Christ.